Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is sitting right beside me. He took my spot. Um, and this is Revolutionary Left Radio. <laughs> no, it's not. What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. I am on the wrong podcast. Although that's a pretty dope-ass name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Armchair Apocrypha. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm-hmm. Um, how was your week? It's fucking long. It's fucking long. It snowed yesterday. It did, and it was not great on the roads today. <laughs> Um, how was your first week? It was great. Um, it's a lot of information, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, but, you know, uh, learning about the FAFSA, learning about financial aid, learning about every school in the area. Woohoo! Um, it's a lot. Oh yeah, I can bet. But it was great. Good. I really like the people I'm working with. That's good. And I have my own office, which is awesome. Yeah, you need to take a picture <laughs> when you're back in the office on Tuesday. Of my office. Um, I'm really proud about my office, guys. It's the first time I've ever had my own office. <laughs> uh, yeah, four walls and my own computer. And a bookshelf. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I've got a... It looks out over the um, central library. So I can look across the street and see people going in and out of, out of the library. I like it. It's really nifty. Um, tomorrow is a holiday, Martin Luther King Day. Gee, it is. Uh, is your store usually busy on Martin Luther King holiday or no? It's just we have different, um, peak times. Peak so times. Like seven to nine, it'll be like nine to eleven. Oh, okay. So instead of like, it just has a, the day just is weirder than a normal Monday, if that makes sense. Yeah, because people are sleeping in a little bit later mm-hmm. and then coming out to get their There's coffee. no school tomorrow, There's all no that school. stuff. I'm pretty sure the banks are closed. So it's just all different. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I do my admin on Monday, so I'm usually, like, not <laughs> out and about. I hide in the back. Yeah. I've got errands to do tomorrow, so I'm going to make the most of it. That's right. Don't know why I was so enthusiastic about that, but <laughs> Yay, Andrew's Yay! errands. Um, do you want to get into the episode? Yeah, I'm ready for it. Awesome. So I've got another woman. Um, this time a Polish born American socialist and feminist and one of the prominent female labor union leaders. What's her name? Her name was Rose Schneiderman. That's a great last name. It is. Um she changed her first name, but I think that she, I think that's her real last name. Okay. Um, Rose Schneiderman was born Rachel Schneiderman on Why April did she 6th. change her name? <laughs> it wasn't spelled the same way as yours. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, Rachel Schneiderman on April 6, 1882, the first of four children of a religious Jewish family in the village of Sawin. 14 kilometers or 9 miles north of Kelm in Russian Poland. I'm sure that's a home rather than a yes. Chelm. Uh, <laughs> her parents were Samuel and Deborah Rothman Schneider. Um, they worked on sewing, table, uh, sewing trades, not tables. Uh, Schneider, Schneiderman first went to Hebrew school, normally reserved for boys and so in, and then to a Russian public school in Chelm. In 1890, the family migrated to New York's uh, New York City's Lower East Side. 
Schneiderman's father died in the winter of 1892, leaving the family in poverty. Her mother worked as a seamstress trying to keep the family together, but the financial strain forced her to put her children in a Jewish orphanage for some time. Schneiderman left school in 1895 after the sixth grade, although she said that she would have liked to have continued her education. Cool. It's not really cool. It's really bad. What did you say? Leaving school after the sixth grade. Although she would have preferred to have stayed in school. Sorry, I heard that she pursued her school for further education. No. That is not cool. I'm so sorry. I swear I'm listening. I totally heard that she was... She left school in 1895 after God, the sixth grade. I'm with her, I promise. <laughs> I need more wine. I only had two sips. Um, after that, she went to work, starting as a cashier in a department store, and then in 1898 as a lining stitcher in a cap factory in the Lower East Side. In a what factory? Cap. Oh, I thought you said cat. <laughs> Just a line of cats. <laughs> a conveyor, meow, meow, conveyor meow. belt. <laughs> that would be Mary's dream. Oh my god. <laughs> Sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> All the cats. God. In 1902, she and the rest of her family moved briefly to Montreal, where she developed an interest in both radical politics and trade unionism. Cool. Uh, she returned to New York in 1903 and with a partner worker started organizing with uh, the women in her factory. Um, when they applied for a charter to the United Cloth Hat and Cap Makers Union, the union told them to come back after they had succeeded in organizing 25 women. They did that within days and the union then chartered its first women's local. Cool. That's really actually cool. That is really cool. <laughs> Uh, Schneiderman obtained wider recognition during a citywide capmaker strike in 1905. Elected secretary of her local and a delegate to the New York City Central Labor Union, she came into contact with the New York, the New York Women's Trade Union League, an organization that lent moral and financial support to the organizing efforts of women and workers. She quickly became one of the most prominent members and was elected the New York branch of, uh, the New York branch's vice president in 1908. She left the factory to work for the League, attending a school with a stipend provided by one of the League's wealthy supporters. She was an active participant in the uprising of the 20,000, the massive strike of the shirtwaist workers in New York City led by the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union in 1909. She also was a key member of the first International Congress of Working Women in 1919, which aimed to address women's working conditions at the first annual International Labor Organization Convention. In 1911, there was a shirtwaist factory fire. Do you know about this one? Which one is it? The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Yes, the Triangle Fire. Yes, I've heard of that one. Uh, In which 146 garment workers were burned alive or died jumping from the ninth floor of a factory building. And that's what kind of brought along the... um, like safety precautions yes. and stuff, and overstuffing people in a room, OSHA, and all of that stuff. Exit signs. <laughs> exit signs, doors that open. Oh yeah, doors that aren't locked. Yeah, because you know workers <laughs> will leave and take. I've told you, yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Um, let's lock our workers in. Yeah, let's just lock them in, and then that, when there's a fire, they'll all just burn. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yes, uh, so to answer your question, yes, I am familiar with the Triangle Fire. Cool. Um, The WTUL had documented similar unsafe conditions, factories without fire escapes or that had locked the exit doors to keep workers from stealing materials, at dozens of sweatshops in New York City and surrounding communities. 
25 workers had died in similar sweatshop and fire in Newark, New Jersey, shortly before the Triangle disaster. Schneiderman expressed her anger at the memorial meeting uh, held in the Metropolitan Opera House on April 2nd, 1911, to an audience largely made up of the well-heeled members of the WTUL. I would be a traitor to these poor burned bodies if I came here to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people of the public, and we have found you wanting. The old Inquisition had its rack and its thumbscrews and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The the thumbscrews are the high-powered and swift machinery close to which we must work, and the rack is here in the fire trap structure that will destroy us the minute they catch on fire. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister's workers. Every year, thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and property is so sacred. There are so many, uh, there are so many of us for one job, it matters little if 143 of us are burned to death. We have tried you citizens, we are trying you now, and you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers and brothers and sisters by way of a charity gift. But every time the workers come out in the only way they know to pr- in the only way they know to protest against these conditions which are unbearable the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us public officials have only words of warning to us warning that we must be intensely order orderly and must be intensely peaceable and they have the workhouse just back of all their warnings the strong hand of the law beats us back when we rise into the conditions that make life unbearable I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from my experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. I like it. I wish I could say things like that. It's really good. Despite her harsh words, Schneiderman continued working in the WTUL as an organizer, returning to it after a frustrating year on the staff of the male-dominated ILGWU. She subsequently became president of its New York branch, then its national president for more than 20 years until it disbanded in 1950. 20 years? 20 years. She was the president of uh, the national organization. In 1920, Schneiderman ran for the United States Senate as the candidate of the New York State Labor Party, receiving uh, 15,086 votes and finishing behind the prohibitionist Ella A. Bull and the socialist Jacob Pankin. Her platform had called for the construction of nonprofit housing for workers, improved neighborhood uh, schools, publicly owned power utilities and staple food markets, and state-funded health and unemployment insurance for all Americans. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And by kind of, I mean really. <laughs> 100 years ago, she was asking for all this stuff. And we still don't We're have still it. asking for all this stuff. Uh, Snyderman was a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union, which you may have heard of before. Yeah. Uh, and she became friends with one of your people, <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, and her husband, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Yeah. He was the president, right? Yeah. He was one of those. <laughs> In 1926, she was elected president of the National WTUL, a post she retained until her retirement. In 1933, she was the only woman to be appointed on the National Recovery Administration's Labor Advisory Board by President Roosevelt, and was a member of Roosevelt's Brain Trust during that decade. 
From 1937 to 1944, she was Secretary of Labor for New York State and campaigned for the extension of Social Security to domestic workers and for equal pay for female workers. During the late 1930s and early 1940s, she was involved in efforts to rescue European Jews but could only rescue a small number. Albert Einstein, one of my people, uh, wrote her, It must be a source of deep gratification to you to be making so important a contribution to rescuing our persecuted fellow Jews from their calamitous peril and leading them toward a better future. That's awesome. Uh, beginning in 1907, so jumping back a little bit, okay. at the first convention of women trade unionists, Schneiderman argued that the political enfranchisement of women was necessary to address their poor working conditions. Accordingly, she helped expand the women's suffrage movement, which was primarily associated with, mi- associated with middle-class women, to include working-class women, especially factory uh, workers, and incorporate the issues they faced. She became a popular speaker with suffrage organizations that focused on working women, including Harriet Stan Blatch's Equality League of Self-Supporting Women and the American Suffragettes, a militant group based in New York City. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of those before. Yes. In 1912, on behalf of the National Women Suffrage Association, uh, she traveled throughout Ohio's industrial cities, giving lectures to working men to garner support for a state suffrage re- uh, referendum. To win men's... This was blah. <laughs> You got it. To win men's support, she emphasized how beneficial the enfranchisement of working women would be for labor issues. I thought that was a tongue twister. You're good. <laughs> I understood it, though. As she later explained, my argument to them was that if their wives and daughters were enfranchised, labor would be able to influence legislation enormously. While Schneiderman was hailed as a powerful speaker, the 1912 referendum did not pass, and it would not until 1923, after the passage of the federal 19th Amendment that granted women the right to vote, that the phrase white male in reference to voting would be removed from the Constitution of Ohio. Mm -hmm. 1917, the same year that New York would vote on women's suffrage referendum, Schneiderman was appointed head of the industrial section of the New York Women's Suffrage Association. In this capacity, she spoke at men's union meetings, though many employers had uh, attempted to ban men from speaking to activists, distributed literature, and instituted a series of open letters that explained how suffrage could help women improve their own working conditions. On the day of the election, Schneiderman and several friends manned three election districts. The first time, uh, the first time she later wrote that they had seen the inside of a polling station. The referendum passed, granting New York's women full entra- en- enfranchisement. After the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, feminists regrouped and, under the leadership of the National Women's Party, pursued passage of Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution, which proposed equal rights for all citizens, regardless of sex. Like other female labor activists, however, Schneiderman opposed the ERA, fearing it would deprive working women of the special statutory protections for which the WTUL had fought so hard, including the regulation of wages and hours, and protection against termination and dangerous working conditions during pregnancy. Ugh. It's weird that an equal rights amendment would strip certain protections from a group. Oh, that doesn't surprise Never, me at all. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody doing that, yeah. especially not in our current. <laughs> uh, uh, have you ever heard the phrase bread and roses? Bread and? Bread and roses. You're saying bread. Bread and roses. And, like, I'm going to bring you bread and roses. Correct. No. <laughs> Just to make sure I heard it right. Okay. Bread and roses. 
Uh, Schneiderman is credited with coining one of the most memorable phrases of the women's movement and the labor movement of her era. What the woman who labors wants is the right to live, not simply exist. The right to, li uh, to life as the rich woman has the right to life, and the sun and the music and art. You have nothing that the humblest worker has not a right to have also. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Help, you women of privilege. Give the ballot to fight with. I like it. Um, her phrase, bread and roses, became associated with the 1912 textile strike of largely immigrant, largely women workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts. It was later used as the title of the poem and was set to music by Mimi Farina, Farina and sung by various artists, among them Judy Collins and John Denver. In 1949, Schneiderman retired from public life, making occasional radio speeches and appearances for various labor unions, devoting her time to writing her memoirs, which she published under, under the title All for One in 1967. Schneiderman never married and treated her nieces and nephews as if they were the, her own children. She had a long-term relationship with Maude O'Farrell Schwartz, another working-class woman active in the WTUL, until Schwartz's death in 1937. Rose Schneiderman died in New York City on August 11th, 1972, at the age of 90. Damn, she lived a long life. Yep. In an obituary appearing in the New York Times, she was credited with teaching Eleanor and Franklin D. Roosevelt most of what they knew about unions and having an indirect influence on the passage of the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, also known as the Wagner Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and, the other, and other New Deal legislation. Cool. The obituary also declared that she had done more to upgrade the dignity and living standards of working women than any other American. That's crazy. And we don't know about her. <laughs> Most people do not. Yes. In March 2011, almost 100 years to the day after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, Maine's Republican Governor Paula Page, who was inaugurated in January of the same year, had a three-year-old... Um, 36-foot-wide mural with the scenes of Maine workers on the Department of Labor's building in Augusta removed and brought to a secret location. The mural has 11 panels and has also a picture of uh, Rose Schneiderman, although she had lit, never lived or worked in Maine. According to the New York Times, LePage, LePage has also ordered that the Labor Department's seven conference room be, named, be renamed. One is named after Cesar Chavez, the farm workers' leader. Mm -hmm. One after Rose Schneiderman, a leader of the New York Women's Trade Union League a century ago. And one after Frances Perkins, who became the nation's first female labor secretary and is buried in Maine. On April 1st, 2011, it was disclosed that a federal lawsuit had been filed in U.S. District Court, seek in US District Court seeking to confirm the mural's current location, ensure that the artwork is adequately preserved, and ultimately to restore it to the Department of Labor's lobby in Augusta. On March 23, 2012, U.S. District, John, uh, U.S. District Judge John A. Woodcock ruled that the removal of the mural was a protected form of government speech and that LePage removing it would be no different from his refusing to read aloud a history of labor in Maine. A month later, supporters of the mural filed a notice of appeal in the First uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. The court rejected the appeal, the appeal on November 28, 2012. On January 13, 2013, it was announced that the mural had been placed in the Maine State Museum's atrium per an agreement between the museum and the Department of Labor, and that it would be a bit available for public viewing the next day. So they found the mural. And they Why put did it in he remove it? Because he's a Republican, and oh, that's what they do. And we don't like to see women. Fuck LePage. <laughs> 
That was good. That was long, but it was good. No, it was really well done. Thank you. Rose Schneiderman. Rose Schneiderman. Schneiderman. Uh, mine is nothing along the same lines. Oh, yeah. I was just in like a mythology trance and oh, I yeah. wanted to learn more about mythology. So I have like two, I have one person we're talking about and then a group of people we're going to talk about. Just because there's not too many stories that they, since they're lesser known, there aren't too many stories on the interwebs. Okay. But I really like both of them. Are you familiar with the Greek god Morpheus? Morpheus? Yes. He was one of the sleeper dream. That's right. Yes. Kudos to you. Thank you. He is the god associated with sleep and dreams. Nice. <laughs> in Ovid's Metamorphoses, he is the son of sleep who appears in dreams in human form. Mm-hmm. Um, from the medieval period, the name began to stand more generally for the god of dreams or of sleep. Um, so he was responsible for shaping and forming dreams through which he could appear um, to mortals in any form. Mm-hmm. This talent made Morpheus a messenger of gods able to communicate divine messages to sleeping mortals. Though he could take any human form, his true form was that of a winged demon because, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would your form be if you could choose any form? Oh, shit. I never thought about that. Oh, yeah? I don't know. I would I would be a winged <laughs> creature so I could fucking fly. So, you know what? I probably would look just like him. What about you? I don't know. Something along those lines. Yeah. I'd be a dragon. That's what I would oh, be. Yeah. <laughs> he was the son of Hypnos, sleep, and um, Pasithea, the goddess of relaxation and rest. So okay. those two go hand in hand. Pasithea? Yeah. And he and his brothers were known as Onari, which translates to dreams. O-N-E-I-R-O-I. Show it to me. It's in the red. Oops. Onro? I'm trying to think of how that would be parsed. Onyori? Yeah. Onyori? I might repeat myself a little bit in these, but... That's fine. That's all right. Being the master of dreams... Morpheus had the ability to send messages to the visions of people to shape these images and give a form to the creatures that lived in dreams. Morpheus himself, like I said, had a talent in mimicking any human in dreams and was able to take any form he wanted. Ovid, the poet, wrote in Metamorphosis, King Sleep was father of a thousand sons, indeed a tribe, and of... Uh, and of them all, the one he chose was Morpheus, who had such skill in miming any human form at will. No other dream, um, like his brothers, can match his artistry in counterfeiting men, their voice, their gait, their face, their moods. And two, he imitates their dress precisely and the words they use most frequently, but he mimes only men. Dot, hmm. dot, dot. When in his real life form, like I said, he had wings on his back, it was believed that he and his brothers were given wings by their uncle Thanatos, um, the deity of death, although some interpretations said that they were wing-born. Because mm-hmm. nothing is ever, you know, set in stone when it comes to mythology, because yeah. it's fucking mythology. Because <laughs> um, it was just people telling stories yes. to each other for a long time before somebody wrote it down. Exactly. Which is so cool. The legend says that Morpheus used his wings not only to reach those who needed help in their dreams, but also to carry his father, the wingless Hypnos, to the g- dream world in the caves when in several occasions he needed to be saved from Zeus's menace. 
This version also suggests that Hypnos was a pretty lazy deity spending (laughs) most of his time sleeping, which made me laugh because he is the god of sleep. That's my. That's me. That's that's the god I want to be. All right. So his brothers. He had three. He had Pobiter. He was the one who created the scary dreams. He was the personification of nightmare, taking the form of huge and scary animals. Mm -hmm. He had Fantasis. He was on creating the fake and illusional dreams and had no form. And then you had Eklos. He was the one creating true dreams, making them more realistic. Okay. So what made Morpheus the biggest among his brother was his ability to oversee the dreams of heroes and kings and influence the dreams of gods. So he was kind of like the top dog of the brothers. Each night... The Oneroi, the brothers, would emerge from the palace of Hypnos and pass through one of two gates. It said that Morpheus would pass through the gate made of horn, which represented truer divine dreams. His brothers would pass through the second gate, which was made of ivory and represented dreams without true meaning. Okay. Um, the Greek word for ivory and deceive are very similar, which I think is kind of cool. Um... So, the dream world of Morpheus was the place where his family lived. While shaping dreams of mortals as he wished and visited countless bedrooms, Morpheus slept in a cave full of puppy seeds. Puppy. 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 Yeah. Okay. Not, unfortunately, not puppies, <laughs> but puppy seeds. Puppy seeds. That mythical fact is maybe why morphine, opium-based medications for severe pain, borrowed its name from Morpheus. That'll put you to sleep. Yeah, but it will. <laughs> um... So I thought this was fun. I just like learning little bits about mythology. I took a one class in college, and I just thought it was fascinating. The River of Forgetfulness and the River of Oblivion, which I think are great names for rivers, uh, were found in this world where they were living, highly protected by the gates under the supervision of two monsters that would easily materialize the fears of any uninvited visitors. The legend says that only the gods from Olympus were allowed in this little family nest. Okay. Um, it kind of just ends on this. Um, it seems that Morpheus was one of the busiest deities. They say so. He didn't have a wife, or at least so is known to, the, or at least so it was known in the Greek mythology. But some interpretations were ready to see him with Iris, the personification of Rainbow and messenger of the gods. And I kind of try to find stories with him in it, but it's kind of more. He's like not even a secondary character. He's a third or like fourth character. Right. Like people go to him to like translate or to give dreams to people but it's not like he's ever a central focus right um but i thought that's really cool because i really like the ideas of dreams i like i really don't ever read into them because it's your brain resting in my mind i'm not one that believes like you know you dream the future or whatever right. and i remember reading like a psychology thing the re- when you think you have deja vu it's usually <laughs> due to lack of sleep so you think you've seen it before, but you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like these interpretations of it and all that good stuff. So now we're going to go on to something a little different. Okay. We're going to talk about the Aranes or the Furies. Okay. Yes. I like to call them the Furies, although that's the Roman name, not the Greek name. Right. They're interchangeable, but they're basically... Those are just names for Greek or Roman mythology. So... These were the three female goddesses seeking vengeance against anyone who had sworn a false oath or had done an evil act. And anytime I see that or I hear about them, I think of um, the movie Hercules, and they actually do a pretty good job yeah. of like their interpretation <laughs> of it. I think 
Um, they were created, I love this story. They were created when the Titan Uranus was castrated by, son Cron- by his son Cronus mm-hmm. and his genitals were thrown into the sea. Mm-hmm. The drops of blood that fell onto Gaia, Mother Earth, created the Furies and the Malay. While out of the sea foam is when Aphrodite emerged, right. as we know. Um, the number of Furies is unknown and it is it de- varies depending on what you read. Um, however... Three are the best well-known, and the three are the ones that you see. Yeah. So you have Electo, the unceasing in pursuit. You have Megara, which, hello, fucking Hercules, <laughs> is the grudging jealous one. Mm-hmm. Or, like, these are the ones that they go after, not that that, that was their personality. And then you have Tisiphony. Tisiphony. Yeah, the vengeful, destructive, blood avenger one. Nice. About the murders and stuff. So the role of the Furies was to tantalize anyone who committed crimes or hubris. It's like, well, sign me up for that job. Are there any trashy romance authors out there talking about the Lost uh, Furies? I hope they are. <laughs> I hope so. If you're a we, trashy, there's a place on the internet for it. I know there is. If you're a trashy romance author, uh, that that's your, uh, that's, that's your, your next project. Yeah, go to. The Lost Furies. So the, <laughs> the Furies live in Erebus. And are more ancient than any of the other Olympian deities. Mm-hmm. Um, hence, like, why they come from Cronus and all this stuff, too. Uh, or Uranus. Uh, their task is to hear complaints brought by mortals against the insolence of the young to the age, of children to parents, of hosts to guests, and of householders or city councils to suppliants, and to punish such crimes by hounding culprits relentlessly. Um, it says that the Furies are crones, and depending <laughs> on pun authors, described as having snakes for hair, dogs' heads, coal-black bodies, bats' wings, and bloodshot eyes. In their hands, they carry brass-studded scourges, and their victims die in torment. Um, furthermore, they are associated with blood, as it was said to drip from their fucking eyes. Ugh. Wearing all black and carrying whips, these three goddesses of vengeance and justice also had bat wings, like I just said. Um, obviously, that gives a pretty intimidating look to them. <laughs> just a little bit. I swear if I saw that in my dreams, it would scare the shit out of me and wake me up. Oh. <laughs> um, some legends say that they, were cur- that they were curses come to life because they were charged with ascending to earth by and punishing the wicked. Um, the Furies were also what it's called, it's not even a word, um, <laughs> Kalkonic, which means that they are related to the Earth and the Underworld. Mm-hmm. When they were not punishing people on Earth, they were working to torture the unfortunate in the Underworld. They served Hades, God of the Underworld, and Persef- Persephone. Um, so now, at least for these people, these ladies, they're, they're mentioned a lot. So I'm going to now go through like how they're mentioned and how they're portrayed in like different ways through different authors and okay. things like that. Cool. Um, so one of the best known literary examples in which the Furies had a major role is Aeschylus' trilogy Orestia. Orestia. Orestia, thank you. In it, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon and Clemenestra, slays his mother who mm-hmm. had killed her husband for sacrificing their daughter. Committing such a grave crime... Orestes is tormented by the Furies and seeks help at the Oracle of Delphi. 
There he is told to go to Athens and ask the goddess Athena for a trial. In the trial, the fears appear as accusers of Orestes, saying that more blood must be spilled for this. The jury votes are evenly split, and Athena decides to actually acquit Orestes. Uh, the Furies threaten to torment all Athenians from now on, but Athena, using the mixture of bribery and threats, changes their minds. Instead, the Fury become the Simnae, and, uh, venerable ones, and instead of vengeance, they become the protectors of justice. So then it kind of changes like how you're supposed to view them. In Euphrates' Orestes, the Furies are the first time equated with the Eumenides, the gracious ones. Eumenides. Humanities, thank you. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Literally the gracious ones, but also translate as kindly ones. Um, <laughs> this is because it was considered unwise to mention them by name for fear of attracting their attention. It's almost like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. The ironic name is similar to how Hades, got the god of the dead, is styled Pluton or Pluto the rich one, quote-unquote, mm. using, using euphemisms for names of deities serves many religious purposes. As you know. It also helped them to put their poetry. That's part of the reason why they had so many names, was so that they couldn't scan the so poetry it can work. better. Yeah. yeah, I like that, too. In Homer's Iliad, as we all know, and I'll have to read in fucking high school, <laughs> uh, the Furies can prevent an individual from using their reason and so lead them to unusual and stupid acts, which scares the shit out of me, that... Um, the example here of Agamemnon, who unwisely stole the prize of Achilles and so upset the hero that he withdrew from the Trojan War. In Book 15, it says, of the Iliad, we are reminded that they favored the eldest sibling when Iris reminds Poseidon of the folly of, of, the folly of going against his older brother Zeus. Homer also mentions that they live in Erebos, or darkness, mm-hmm. and have no pity in their hearts. In the Odyssey, Homer describes them as avenging furies and they curse um Melampus king of Argos with temporary madness so in these in the Iliad and Odyssey it shows that they can actually like do mind tricks on you too so they're like Jedi yeah (laughs) they are Jedi (laughs) they are the they are the OG Jedis the OG Jedis um the OJs yeah the furies were especially vigilant of crimes that were committed this is just kind of like a wrap up uh that were Jeez. The Furies were especially vigilant of crimes that were committed within a family, of which uh, matricide and patricide were viewed as the most heinous, most heinous of crimes. In ancient Greece and Rome, such crimes were expected to be avenged by the children of murdered parents. Mm-hmm. Expected. Uh, the Furies would haunt a son who had failed to avenge a parent who had been killed unjustly. The Furies were relentless and hounded their victim until he made retribution on the death of his parents. So it's like, wow. I thought that was weird. <laughs> but that's really all they say about them. I wish there's like more details on it. And I thought, you know, it's mythology. There's so much written about it. But I, ch- I didn't want to go into ones that we already kind of knew. Yeah. I wanted to, I mean, I was familiar with the Furies. Morpheus, I was like, oh, yeah, I know about the God of Sleep and Dreams and all that stuff. But I don't know. I thought those were kind of two <laughs> cool ones. I'm like, these, this is definitely hashtag armchair apocryphal yeah. because it's fucking mythology. But. I thought it was really neat, and it makes me want to get back into reading mythology again. So, sweet dreams tonight, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) I will sleep tight. Mercury has been really, like, good. He's tired. Yeah, he's worn out. What'd you do? I don't know. Okay. I took him out into the snow a few times. 
Do you like it? Yeah, he seems to be pretty fine with it. it I, I think that he saw it last year, so he's probably... Yeah, this isn't his first rodeo yeah. in the snow. He keeps trying to go into the neighbor's yard, and I'm like, they can see he your did footprints. that, yeah. yeah. Right over there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Silly. Yeah. Um, but that's all I got about mythology for right now. Okay. I was trying to do something a little different. But then I was like, I, now I can't find anything. <laughs> but it's still interesting, so I'm going to talk about it. She asked me earlier, she was like, what should I do my episode on? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to do it on? She was like, well, um, I want to say your mom, but that would be mean. <laughs> you weren't supposed to tell that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's out there for everybody. Okay. <laughs> um, you want to get out of here? Yeah. It's pretty late. It is. It's way later than when we usually record. Yeah. It's by bedtime. All right. Uh, thank you all for listening today. We love you. Um, you can find us, uh, you can find our website at absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. I have some stories there. Uh, you can buy my books. Uh, please buy my books. Um, we've got some artwork from Katie White. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got some music from uh, Chet Osman and Joshua Paul Brooks, and our current uh, computer-generated um, uh, intro/outro is up there too. If you want to listen to it by itself, um, if you want to become a patron, uh, we are on Patreon at Absent Activism Arts. Um, if you want to make a one-time donation, please get in touch with me because we always appreciate that. Um, and I've got Venmo, uh, PayPal, all of that stuff. Um, what else was I going to say? Uh, we're on Twitter at AbsentactArts, but we never use it. Um, let's so do I don't it. Know. Let's, can we do our first <laughs> one on like April Fool's? Sure, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll make our first, uh... Our first tweet uh, from the Absent Activism Arts account on April 1st. Let's do it. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Absent Activism Arts. Um, I think that's it. Um, I'm on Diaspora now. Uh, it's a Facebook Facebook alternative. Um, if you're on Diaspora, feel free to look me up. It's AWM Rights. Um, if you are on Mastodon, I am also on Mastodon. It's a Twitter alternative. Um, if you, uh, if you are in Mastodon, please feel free to look me up. It's AWM Rights. Um, yeah. Sounds good to me. Cool. Uh, we're going to get out of here. We will see you in two weeks. Yeah. And, uh, have a, have a good week. Mm-hmm.